Welcome to the Access VFX podcast, pursuing inclusion, diversity, awareness and opportunity in VFX, animation and games industries. Hi, I'm Simon Devereaux, founder and director of Access VFX, bringing the visual effects animation and games industry together, working towards a shared goal to make our industry more diverse and inclusive by taking action rather than just talking about it. Hello, I'm Simon, founder and director of Access VFX, and welcome to season two, episode 23 of the Access VFX podcast. We are back from our summer break and ready to open up the Access VFX vault once again to another member of the VFX animation and games community. So, who are we asking the big 20 questions to on this episode? Well, We've been very aware of our lack of guests repping the games industry on the pod this season. So as soon as I had that light bulb moment, it was a no-brainer contacting the brilliant Dell Walker. Dell has been in the games industry for 12 years, now residing in Santa Monica, LA, in his brand new role as senior games artist at Naughty Dog. We covered a lot on this episode, from growing up in Tooting, South London, how Dell got into the games industry, and a packed conversation full of solid gold advice and insights into some very cool games. I may have fanboyed out a little bit on this one. Anyway, that's enough of my chat. Press pause on your video game of choice, put down your joystick, showing my age there, and lock onto this excellent instalment of the Access VFX podcast. Hello and welcome to the Access VFX podcast, season two, episode 23. It's me, Simon, and we're back from our summer break and two summer special episodes that we hope you enjoyed, well-rested and ready to bring you the great and the good of VFX animation and games. In this episode, we're opening the Access VFX vault to a guest we've been trying to get on the pod for a while now. We're well aware that the last 22 episodes have doubled down on the first two elements of our holy trinity, visual effects and animation, but we rarely get to speak on the games industry. Well, we're certainly making up for this on this particular episode. Our guest has been in the industry for 12 years now, starting out as a junior character artist for Blitz Game back in 2010 and rising through the ranks ever since. He's held down significant roles over the years with Sega, Splash Damage, PlayStation, Rocksteady, Creative Assembly, Respawn and many others on titles such as Apex Legends, Halo Wars 2, Batman Arkham Origins and Arkham Knight, PlayStation VR Worlds, Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League, and Star Wars Jedi Survivor. Amid all of this, he still makes time to commit to his role as guest lecturer at De Montfort University and a BAFTA member and judge. Now at Naughty Dog as senior character artist all the way from Los Angeles, California, it's the one and only, it's Del Walker. Oh, Welcome to the podcast, Del. Wow. <laughs> If you have imposter syndrome, you should just have someone like you around to <laughs> remind them. I'll be your hype, man. <laughs> remind you of, yeah, for sure. That was lovely. Oh, yeah, glad to be here. I'm all about the intros. Got to lean into it, though. Got to go for it. <laughs> so how are you? I know we've been uh, trying to get this down amid busy schedules, and uh, I think I might have uh, dropped you a note on LinkedIn probably about six weeks ago. And then we said, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. And then you got busy, I got busy. And then we, uh, I thought, oh, forgot about that. Let's get him on. And here we are exactly yeah no i'm glad you reached out again um yeah it has been a really busy time for me because like as you mentioned i've uh um i was at respawn for the last year mm-hmm. um and then got the got the call from naughty dog and which meant um relocating and so you know moving from one place to another especially with with a 
with the family. Yeah, you know, right. Definitely soak up a lot of time and attention. But, yeah, um, a two-year-old in tow, yeah. which must have been fun. Exactly, yeah. You know, and she's the CEO of the family. Always. So everything goes. Uh, they're the boss, mate. They are the boss. Right. I, I know from experience. And it only gets worse <laughs> eight years down, down the line. <laughs> Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on here. And, um, you know, we're recording this uh, a good week before release, um, where I guess allegedly we're not allowed to talk about your role at Naughty Dog, but we can because this is out in the world. And uh, it's yeah, a, it's a sure. pleasant surprise to me because I am a huge fan of that studio and its output. It almost is exclusively the only games I play, I think. I'm a, I'm a big fan of a open world, emotive, emotive story, having played Last of Us about, well, I'm about to start playing it the fourth, for the fourth time in its new new guise and currently completing Last of Us 2 for a second time, which I'm finding terrifying <laughs> and exhausting because they're pretty grueling games, aren't they? But uh, incredible incredible pieces of work. Yeah, similarly, like um, I'm, I guess, hyper-focused on the story-driven games, mm. um, playing them and making them. And uh, they're becoming a little bit few and far between, if I'm honest. Um, yeah. yeah, true. And... And I've been trying to manoeuvre my uh, career to try and follow them as much as possible. I guess probably ever since I touched an, an Arkham game, I was just like, oh, yeah, I want to make stuff a bit more yeah. like this if possible. See, I could but, properly um, fanboy over the Arkham games as well. I <laughs> death. They were great. They were great when they yeah, came out. Yeah, for sure. Definitely affected me. So I was, I was really happy to have worked on that. Should be getting your autograph. Well, I'm not trying not to be too sycophantic on this podcast, Dell. I've got to be the tantamount uh, host for this uh, for this episode. Hey, I was, I was effectively the creative janitor on a lot of those projects. <laughs> so I wasn't the brains behind all the genius. Creative janitors. Don't put that on your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> well, Dell, congratulations on the role. It's great to hear that you've Thank moved you. to Naughty Dog <laughs> and uh, watching your your career kind of continue to to grow. Uh, and uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing what you do there. The other thing we have in common <laughs> is Leicestershire because I'm from Leicester and uh, you're oh, obviously a big supporter I... of De Montfort University. Yeah, I lived there for three years. I love Leicester. It's one of the few places I think I could, I don't know if live indefinitely, but definitely go back and stay like, I just, I don't know, something comfortable and comforting about yeah. Leicestershire. Thanks um, for saying that. I know. It's, it's home. It's, uh, I have this strange uh, affinity with folk that have anything to do with Leicester. We've had a few uh, members of the uh, the, uh, the Actors VFX, uh, I guess, guest membership on this podcast with uh, a few a few tales from Leicester. So uh, yeah, that's no, yeah. good to hear, man. It's good Not to hear. Imagine. <laughs> Well, we should open the vault, really. It'd be rude not to, wouldn't it? It's been a while since we've opened the uh, the raw iron doors, Dell. It's been uh, the whole of summer. We've given it a rest, so it might take a while to uh, get the key to work. But uh, are you ready? Are you feeling good? Are we going to dive into the Big 20? Oh, let's do it. Let's do it. All right, let's open the door. And we're into question one, which is, I kind of gave it away at the start of the pod, but where in the world are you and where did you grow up? Right, so uh, I am currently in Santa Monica, California. Um, uh, I mean, it's a it's a hub for the games industry, right? Mm. You have tons of games and um, game studios around here. Um, not just Naughty Dog; it's like Santa Monica's next door, and then Sony Santa Monica's next door. They make God of War, and then they got Insomniac down the road, and they make Spider Man. And uh, Riot Games is just a little bit further, and then blizzard's not far so yeah wow. it's a, definitely a steeper hub so um uh but i did not grow up <laughs> anywhere so <laughs> oh, really uh, so sunny no i i i was born and raised in london yes um in south london nice. so yeah to my two caribbean immigrant parents who came over for a better life 
for sure. So wow. I'm um, definitely uh, quite further than the stones throw away from where I started off. But, um, yeah. Where in South uh, London? Be going well. Where did you grow up in South London? No, I, I grew up in an area called Tooting. Tooting? Um, yeah. So, um, in fact, there's a lot of Caribbean people there. In fact, and a lot of what a lot of people don't um, really um, make the connection with is a lot of where the bus lines end in London. Mm. That's where a lot of um, Caribbean people come from. So, like Brixton, where mm. the bus line end, or Hackney. That's because during the 1950s, um, after you know London was completely decimated in World War II, um, and there were no men. Um, they invited yeah. all the Caribbean people to come and like run the transport system. Um, so they're basically going to have economic suffering for another 50 years, or let's get everyone from the colonies to come over and get trained up and take, like, keep the country running, run the factories and wow. run the buses, run the trains. And so, yeah, that's why you get like lots of Caribbean people, people like on the, either the very end of the South or the very end of the East. Um, oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I wish they just told this in school. It would right. take two seconds. Like, You've just, just done it now. Like, yeah, exactly. We yeah, to... it takes no time at all to like explain the demographic of the city. But um, yeah, I mean, that says That's, a lot about London already in terms of its genetic makeup, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Like, so tooting to to Santa Monica in a you know a good you know, <laughs> yeah. not, not, not too not many sure years. How many really. can say that? <laughs> So how yeah, um, how are you finding life in Santa Monica? Yeah, it's good so far. Like, I don't think I've been here long enough to really make a full review. Like, uh, right. I feel like there the yeah the the full Yelp review needs to come a little later. But um, yeah, no, it's going really well. It's like a beautiful place, mm. and um, it's nice that it's warm all the time too. But then there's also another factor as well that um, like. I'm seeing a form of a city because of the level of career I'm at. You know, it's really difficult to be like, oh, Santa Monica, oh, California is beautiful. Mm. Depending on your situation, like California could be hell. Yeah. And the same is true for a lot of the places in the UK. So, um, yeah, it's interesting you put it yeah. like that. Yeah. Because it's a you big know, place, like, isn't it? Los Angeles. Right, and there's lots yeah. of nice places, but there's a lot of pretty heavy duty areas as well. You know, I'm no expert. Exactly. I've been a few times. But, um, but yeah. Exactly. So I wanted to explore. Um, you talked about growing up in Tooting, um, Del. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about, you know, obviously growing up with, uh, you, know, you know, parents who either supported you on your, 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 your road to working in games or perhaps went, I don't know, is that a, is that a viable career option? What was your experience growing up? Yeah, so I think it's, I think there's like two ways that usually happen, usually, two paths that usually happen when you have parents who immigrate from outside into the UK, because more often than not, they're coming for a better life. Yeah. And so it usually takes, it's usually two paths. Um, a lot of the path that my parents took was we are already in a better place than where we started. Mm -hmm. So just do something that makes sense. Keep it simple. And the other um, side is we've, our, our children have arrived in, this, we, our children are born in this new place where we have a better life, but they must excel and take, a, a, take up as much opportunity as possible. So you often find um, two forms of immigrant parents. They'll either say, find a trade that works and stick to it and get really good at it, or 
you must become a doctor <laughs> like it's it's really <laughs> it's really like a spectrum it's really a spectrum my parents were the first um they were more like you know keep it simple just find a trade something that makes sense you know like if i had said like oh, i really want to be a, become a mechanic they would have been like yes that's yeah. a good trade everyone needs cars yeah yeah, um, yeah exactly it'll always exist <laughs> for sure and um uh so it was really interesting for me because um I would say I was quite a precocious child, but not academic, mm. um, because a lot of my expression came from creation, um, creativity, yeah. and um, and so I was really fortunate in the sense that I had picked up how to use computers quite early, okay. um, and I did an IT course. I remember this really. I finished <laughs> high school and I, I I did an IT course, and I remember there was a teacher who's like. I was doing okay in the class and she like pulled me aside and she like wanted to have a chat with me and she was like, I see hundreds of kids and I was just like, oh, here we go. She's <laughs> going to give me the you can do better talk. Like, and she's like, I see hundreds <laughs> of kids and I feel like I can figure them out. And she said to me, um, and she, her job is purely to teach this computing class. And she goes to me, you're not meant to be here. You're supposed to either be some sort of artist or some sort of actor and you need to go away and figure out which one of those is wow um and i was just like okay old lady you don't know what you're <laughs> talking about um but i did have like serious interest in in the arts for sure yeah. um i just uh i just didn't re i mean i mean you probably remember how it was like um you know 20 plus years ago mm. people said like if you want to be an artist it's like there's no money there's in, no, yeah. uh, why do you want to be an artist <laughs> Like, like the industries, the visual industries weren't as the behemoth they are now, yeah. right? So um, it was hard to see something like that. But um, ultimately, I ended up uh, signing, um, switching over to a graphic design course. And I was just really good at it. And I was like, OK, let me stick up. with this. Yeah. Like, so I did a college course. I did graphic design. And then um, I watched... Star Wars Episode One second DVD bonus disc. Oh, Phantom Menace. And yes, the Phantom Menace. And there was a bonus disc that in the special features that showed how they made it. No way. And that was the first time I'd ever heard the term concept artist. Um, and I was just like, whoa, these guys are literally just paid to just make spaceships and make characters. And then they showed a little bit of the guys who made the 3D um, uh, models of the droids. And I was just like, what is this? Who are these people? And there was just like a machine and like George Lucas was like walking around just like choosing, choosing things like, oh, we need more of these. And he's just like had a catalog of stuff to choose from. And then I, I think that was the first time I saw something that I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. Because I don't think I'd ever really known what I wanted to do. Yeah. But I was like, I want to try something to do with that which um, led me to the, the university game art course in Leicester, DMU, because mm. they had a, co a course called Game Art, wow. um, which covered concept art and the creation of video games. And I was like, okay, let me just try it. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, as they said, the, the rest is history, because wow. the first year of that course, I just was like, like breathing it in. Like I couldn't stop making stuff. I was That's like, great. 
I just felt like I was at home making stuff out of cardboard boxes and someone was saying, yeah, go you. Like it just didn't feel real that you could be graded on this stuff. Especially like you say, as a kind of not, not traditionally non-academic type kid. I mean, I was the same. I wasn't very academic and actually to find something that you excel in and uh, arguably comes naturally because you, as you say, yes. you're this creative kid who had a interest in computers. Correct. Exactly. Um, yeah, I think the academic, the academic path and the creative path, um, they can, the, it's clearer to see what the academic path successes are. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily as clear for creative um, paths, especially yeah. in like an industry that is changing literally every two, three years. God, it is so fluid. It's, it's crazy. I mean, I, going back to the, the, the advice you got from your parents there, I mean, I love that. I mean, I'm going to borrow that for my kid. I love the idea that it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever you choose, you stick, you know, go for it. I don't just kind of go, I might do this or I might do that. I love whether it's yeah, mechanic, yeah. illustrator, graphic designer, you know, I don't know, window cleaner, <laughs> yeah. go, go all in um, or go off and be a, like you say, more academic career, get, get your head in the books and go and be a lawyer, doctor, whatever. Exactly. Fascinating. Yeah. And as a creative kid, I mean, you talked about computers. Were you kind of a bit of an all-rounder? Did you, were you drawing a lot? Were you painting a lot? Or was it all more about the kind of the, that almost tech, technological creativity you know almost like pulling things apart almost a, an engineering mindset i mean what was your type of creative um well i was definitely drawing a lot and i was uh, i had an aptitude for drawing like mm. i don't like to use the word talent i just yeah. managed to be able to replicate what i saw a, um a, a very easily yeah um which you know is a meaningless thing if you don't hone a craft anyway but mm. i definitely had an aptitude for drawing um it just really, yeah, I just found it very easy to draw whatever I saw. Um, my thing with um, actual, with computers was um, I was really fortunate enough for my uncle to gift me um, a computer. He was a pilot, my uncle, and he was just like, yeah, computers are the future. Let's get, like, my nephew a computer. And it, it didn't have anything special, but I became so comfortable around computers. Mm -hmm. Um that I think that's a lot of what happens with um, a new, like, because I obviously we were around before the internet and after the internet. Yeah. And if you had a computer at the time internet became a thing, you picked it up. You picked it up when it was really difficult to really navigate things. And so your comfortability with new software and tech was just way higher than people who were jumping in late. Yeah. And so um, I was just, after that, I was just like, uh, I learned Macromedia Flash. Um, I learned um, Photoshop. Um, it just all just, yeah, it just all seemed really yeah. straightforward to me. And um, I guess it was just a good base for when I was ready to start um, my graphic design course that I just had such a familiarity with software. Um, yeah. And I was really interested in um, drawing too. That's super cool. And uh, what, what computer did your uncle buy you? I have no idea, dude. That thing was awful. <laughs> just a big, like, it was like, <laughs> just yeah, a big white box in like, the uh, exactly. The it was like the end of the nineties, dude. It was like yeah. um, who knows what that was, but it was enough Did for me job. to be able to get like a simple version of Photoshop at the time and like try digital painting and stuff like that. So God, I remember um, Adobe Illustrator on an old uh, second hand 
um iMac you know the colorful ones you know the pink, Ooh, pink one I had it was a hand-me-down painful. from one of my friends it was hard work my <laughs> god trying to yeah. get in there so slow the internet was crap back then that's as well. that's the secret though because if you started back then you have so much patience because everything was so difficult oh god i mean i was going to ask you about gaming because uh you, you're doing the games course i wanted to kind of to see whether you were a kind of avid gamer growing up and uh yeah you know, games back in the day especially when you put a tape in um you had to wait quite a long time yeah. until you got to play the thing sure uh, it's not like your ps5 Commodore 64 i had one of those yeah right you invested time right <laughs> yeah absolutely so that was my first um experience like of having a home gaming machine was the commodore 64 mm. and for those of you who don't know what that was i basically had i basically had a game a game machine like eight years too late or nine years too late because i was giving it to me like as you say like as a hand-me-down mm. and the idea is that you played the audio cassette from yeah. beginning to end and when it ended, that's when you could play the game, which meant you had to... <laughs> it's made that horrible noise, in it? Yeah, it was a horrible noise. And the games were rubbish. And well, they were but, good for back, was, back in the day. They were great. I Come mean, on. yeah. Come I mean, on. If you look Even at eight now, years later. Like, <laughs> but, um, yeah, my, well, my friends had Super Nintendos. And so that was my experience. In fact, uh, my experience was that I didn't have a home console, a gaming console, but my friends did. So I always wanted to go mm. to my friend's house when I was um, younger. But it also meant that um, I was exposed to mostly multiplayer games. Okay. Um, and if I wasn't, then I was looking at Japanese epic games, and which completely coloured my um, it completely coloured my my preferences of games. So. Mm. You know, even by the time I did, I think my first game console was actually the PlayStation 2. Like, it took me a really long time before I got um, my own console. Um, but because I was constantly seeing, like, you know, the Street Fighters and, you know, Sega games and yeah. even the early Final Fantasies and maybe Metal Gear Solid, um, uh, everything that I was seeing was Japanese. Um, yeah. Uh, a lot of JRPGs as well. Um, I, and because I had a PC... I could emulate a Super Nintendo much later on. Wow. So I was playing loads of Japanese JRPGs um, at home. Um, God, don't, and get so... started, don't get me started on Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> I love that yeah. game. Yeah, of course. And so, That's yeah, sick. I was really fortunate. Some of my, some of my friends would like lend me their, um, their PlayStation so I could play games like that. Um, but it was a lot later on when I was getting into the game industry. Um, and making games i was finding that everyone else was really interested in making games i had no interest in um and so even now um i don't ever really want to work on a first person shooter uh, yeah, um yeah but because i've completely been crafted towards the japanese um sensibilities of yeah. gaming where there are no first person shooters there are only like third person actions or jrpgs or mm. where, like that's not a camera point of view often associated with with the east yeah. it meant that they just did nothing for me like um and so it meant that i kind of curved and bent my um uh my desire to on what career my career path to be was more story-based games a lot of the time which is why you know i ended up moving more towards stuff, yeah. things like yeah, exactly. Exactly. Story-based um, story games, for sure. Like, uh, you know, 
I, I thought I didn't like games and I played Arkham, the Arkham game. I was like, oh, I do like games again. Yeah. I just didn't, I just don't want to play Doom. Like I didn't realize. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the same was true when I was at Respawn. I worked on the Star Wars um, Survivor game that's going to be coming out soon, which is also a story-based game. And, you know, also now uh, working at Naughty Dog too, um, which is like, you know, the pinnacle of the story-based title. So that's great. Uh, yeah, I, I think, um, that definitely affected the the projects I wanted to work on. It's refreshing to hear that, actually. It almost kind of speaks to that advice yeah. you got when you were younger. It's like almost stick to it and actually stick into yeah. it's on your terms. Because, I mean, I we share that. I mean, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a casual gamer now. I mean, I'm getting more into it now my kid's getting a bit older. Um, yeah, but I've, I've never, I never got on with um, first person shooters. I used, I could never get myself oriented to it. It used to be really clunky. Yeah. I, liked, I always liked you know really simply i like to see my little guy on the screen i just like to see them interact with the environment. exactly exactly yeah so i mean i i don't have any beef with first person shoot it's just a preference right exactly. it's just a it's just a preference you've doubled down on what you love to do yeah, which exactly. i think is great Right, we're in danger of spending the whole episode on question one here, Dale. Sure. So I'm gonna. It, yeah, it's my it fault. It's my fault. Um, I told you I'd get a bit geeky <laughs> on this one. Um, so we're gonna get in question two, which is uh, kind of the Access VFX interview question in many ways. It's the three words that describe you, and what, what three have you chosen? Do we have three separate words? Do we have a three-word sentence? What have you gone with? Uh, they're definitely three separate words. So I'd say the first word is patient, for sure. Like mm -hmm. I feel like I'm. A patient person but i didn't realize it until i met other people who weren't yeah so patient but i uh, um and that's probably because of my upbringing too not the Commodore um, 64 that would have uh, taught not. you patience <laughs> <laughs> of course uh so patience has probably been like my secret weapon mm -hmm. i feel like um and uh i have to put in social because i do think i'm a super social person like i do like to connect with people and check in with them and I think it's actually what's afforded me a lot of um the roles I've been in mm -hmm. you know the one of the reasons I got in at Respawn is because uh I I admit like kept tabs and made friends with someone at um creative assembly and you know long after they'd left and moved on to a different studio I'd still call them like every six months That's and just be like hey man how you doing how's things how's life blah 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 and then one day he was just like, hey, by the way, there's a job here I really want to you know, be perfect for. Nice. And um, that exact same thing happened at Rocksteady. Someone called me because I called them. And yeah, that, yeah. that almost exact same thing happened at Splash Damage. Like almost all my jobs it's been through because I've been really social and just formed relationships and attended to them. I love that. Um, and so, yeah, patient, social and probably positivity nice. for sure uh even when i'm being even when i'm being critical i'm being i'm trying to make it funny like <laughs> like i'm not i feel like yeah i feel like positivity is definitely i will actually throw in that's one of the reasons i left the uk because i felt like it was making me a less positive person oh, really? the last like three years <laughs> yeah it's been a strange like, time isn't yeah. it it's changing me. I'm a positive person. What is going on? Uh, I maybe just need to tap out, have a bit of a break, but yeah. positivity, patience, and um, 
Yeah, patience, positivity, yeah, and social. Yeah, almost got the three Ps then. It would have been a Adele Walker acronym then. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. yeah. But yeah, and I like your, your take on social because a lot of people just use the term networking all the time. Networking, you've got to network, no, you've got to network. I, yeah, I, I don't think, like that mm, word. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I, I could have easily have used that word, but I don't like that word because it feels like it's a connection based on reciprocating or, mm, or retrieving yeah, something re out of a person. Quick, yeah. But there are some people I've stayed in touch with and who haven't been around for like 10 years and there is nothing they can do for my career <laughs> because they've even moved into a different career or, yeah. you know, for whatever reason. But I just want to remain a social connection with yeah. them. Um, yeah, life's a funny thing yeah. as well, isn't it? But I like how you put that, like, you know, uh, tending to relationships, you know, creating them and tending yeah. to them. And, it's just, and, and that's so important rather than kind of networking feels like there's almost a a reward at the end of the relationship where right. that runner you befriended is going to run their own studio and they're going to bring you in as the Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah, I don't like to think of things like that. I love that. That's um, excellent. Okay, we're going to come back to that patient, social and positive. I love it. Um, so what inspires you, Del? What, what is the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning and puts a, a, a kick in your stride? Uh, I definitely think it's whenever I'm working on something where I know that I would have wished I worked on that thing or whenever I see something and I'm like, Oh, I wish I worked on that. Like it's definitely, it's not, I, I don't feel like I'm ever envious or jealous. Mm. It's just a, Oh wow. That would have been nice if, and that almost always comes from things that have an emotional connection to something. Yeah. Um, I, I don't find, I don't see things that are just like, Oh, that's cool. Like, like, mm, yeah, that's cool. It's usually when there is an emotional connection attached to something. Yeah. Like, The Last of Us is a really good example. I feel like those the characters in there have have caught, given so much of an emotional reaction to people, whether you're like a positive emotional reaction or not, mm. but it's affected your life in some way to the point that you changed emotion yeah. rather than, oh, there's a cool character that just looks cool. Um, so that's my inspiration cool. is definitely when um yeah something has taken has transcended to art and started to become it's kind of part uh, of culture isn't it we've touched on this on the podcast exactly. about uh, visual effects and episodic stuff mm -hmm. like stuff that good stuff not the stuff that gets forgotten but the really good stuff that will last forever you know you're feeding into the human condition and culture and uh, you know storytelling plays with emotions and that's why you know we're yes. talking about story-based games and the last of us is a great example you know i've played that first game as i said on earlier like three times already i'm probably going to go in for a yeah. fourth and that ending gets me every time i'm like whoa of course. I, had to, I had to get my wife in to show her and she wasn't bothered yeah. <laughs> but I'll, but it's amazing and it just you know to, to feed up you know to 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 yeah it just means a lot to people is what i'm saying these things mean a lot to so many millions of people and to play a part in that yeah. is uh is huge it must be a great feeling yeah and I also think as well that's uh something I was I had been looking for for a long time because like I said I grew up um focused on a lot of Japanese games mm. and a lot of Japanese titles have a lot of romance in them yeah. like you know they have you know a lot of uh yeah. a, a lot of different elements um like yeah a lot of the the loss and tragedy is just as much a part mm. of the fun and the action yeah and memorable memorable characters um going through a range of um sympathies and empathies and stuff that's mm. yeah i find that stuff fascinating yeah 
you do go on a journey with those characters, don't you? I mean, sorry to bring up Metal Gear Solid because that is one of my no, of course, greatest a, gaming a, memories. Yeah, and, um, an amazing title. I played that. I completed that in two weeks. I was on the dole for the only time I've ever been on the dole at work. It was for two weeks. I was <laughs> living in Elephant Castle, and I, I, <laughs> I powered through Metal Gear Solid on the PS One, and it's still one of the most rewarding gaming experiences I've ever had. It was incredible hiding <laughs> in those boxes. Good times. Anyway, gonna st- I'm going to move away from Metal Gear Solid. I may return to it, sure. but uh, we're going to move into the, uh, the 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 visit from an extraterrestrial. Dell, um, explain okay, what you sure. do for a living to an alien. What are you going to tell them when they knock on your door in Santa Monica? Uh, it's it'd be so much easier if I was a doctor or something, <laughs> you know, something meaningful. <laughs> like, but instead, uh, I create entertainment to keep people occupied and not bored <laughs> like like it's that's effectively what we do in the games industry you know we just uh just keep people occupied just, yeah <laughs> keep people occupied basically yeah, there's some truth in that um, there's some truth in that but we find a way to make it like we find a way to be passionate about it and put love into it you know what's cool with gaming is a game that doesn't you don't make if, if you play for a couple of hours you don't feel like you wasted your time because sometimes I've played mm. games, I'm like, I've just been wasting my life here. You know, I've just literally... Yeah, 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 of course. Um, but if I'm actually playing something that, you know, taps into my emotions, that scares me, that it's exhilarating, that you need to lie down after, uh, there's something in that. I'm no yes, expert. Absolutely. I'm no expert. I'm, just, yeah. I'm, just, I'm <laughs> talking to you as a user here. Um, of course. But yeah, I like that. I like that. I think the aliens may be happy with that. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, I guess we'll hear from <laughs> them later. <laughs> Um, so we've touched on uh, kind of your formative years already. Um, and the, the next question in the vault is, what did you want to be when you grew up? So I know you were a creative kid and you kind of, I imagine you wanted to do something with computers. But before you picked up that copy of The Phantom Menace and, and checked out the uh, yeah. the extra disc, you know, what what was it? You I didn't know. Do? Yeah, I, I can honestly say I did not know. And that was like all the way up until like the age of 17. I was wow. like, don't know. <laughs> don't know um it worked out well for me in the end but um i spent a lot of time not knowing yeah that's, that's a good thing isn't it i think just going with you know yeah. seeing what life throws at you and it's obviously worked out for you right it worked out yeah i, I there's a you know it's 50 percent luck too right something yeah. fell into place but um people i think sometimes people berate themselves and sometimes people congratulate themselves too mm. much um it's a, definitely a mix of a lot of factors yeah, it just so happened when the right thing was in front of me yeah. i was like really comfortable working at it but mm. yeah i have i had no clue dude like i just knew a lot of things i didn't want to be but... yeah that's fair that's fair so moving into kind of your your, your college years really and again we talked about demonfer i guess I, this has kind of been answered but <clears throat> It would be remiss of me not to ask it, Dell. Is you know what made you choose the university you went to? So I know you talked about the games course that you you went on. Was that the sure. only offer on the table? Was that the only option, or was there other stuff at play? What made you choose? There the were offer? a few other courses. I mean, it was like it was like fifteen years ago now, so it's a little bit harder to remember. Hmm. But I remember once I figured out that I liked the idea of what concept art was about, where it was effectively helping to create things that would be part of the entertainment industry mm. it was about finding courses that did that and um 
So concept art was the driver, wasn't it? That's what I'm... It was always a driver. Yeah, there's a little bit of a running joke that almost all 3D artists wanted to be a concept artist first. (laughs) Um, Because they could never see themselves working in 3D, but they knew Mm -hmm. they could, like, understand the the idea of painting and drawing. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think what led me and drew me to that course was that they had examples of previous students' work that looked, like, good like that was literally all it came down to and they was just like oh okay people who do that go here um it was a it, it wasn't a very complex thought out process it was yeah. just like this is what concept art looks like what place looks most like they understand what concept art is and then ultimately within six months i stopped doing concept and started focusing on 3d anyway which was i was introduced to 3d there that's interesting it's almost similar to your answer around what inspires you, isn't it? It's kind of like you, you know, you're working on the stuff that you you almost wish, you know, yeah, taking your know, out of body experience. I wish I worked on that. And then you've got obviously these people are doing this work at this place. I want to be in there, not sitting there going, ah, oh, that must be cool working there or studying there. Sorry, yes. not working there. But there's definitely some correlation with what you said earlier in terms of that kind of running theme of inspiration. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay, so I'm going to keep powering through these questions, Del. Um, so we're going to move from <laughs> colleges to the big break. You know, so how did you get your foothold in the industry after your studies? You know, what was the moment when you got your what you consider your big break? Yeah, uh, I get. I guess there's like my. I, I mean, your big break is your first entrance into the industry, right? And I was yeah. a little bit fortunate because, like I said, being social has always been kind of. I don't want to use the term superpower, but it's definitely something I've been quite uh, had a natural aptitude for um, retaining. And so when I was in my first year at university, we had guest lectures that would come in and talk about like, oh, this is what you need to do to become in the the game industry. These are things you need to consider. And I would um, I would get all of their contacts um, and then hold on to them. And I wouldn't send any. I, I'd only send the message and be like. An email that would just be like really happy with um uh, or uh, really grateful that you came and gave us a, um the talk you know nice. it's really inspiring um hopefully one day i'll have something cool to show you something really short yeah, and i always got a, like yeah. a really yeah a really nice message back and so i just collected those nice and then as i approached my third year i just i had tr- practiced so hard to be good it was i given myself to this course it was like religion to me all i cared about <laughs> was getting good at um character art at the time and um as i approached halfway from my third year i just started emailing everyone all, all of those guest lecturers and just be like hey just to let you know like i'm going to be um graduating soon here is some of the stuff i'm making at the moment could i have really simple advice on what i should be focusing on um and Back then, I was a lot better than the average artist, like a lot better. But now, if you look at it back then, yeah. there are loads of kids that were that good. Yeah. But um, it culminated in a bunch of people contacting me and be like, hey, maybe we can make something work. And then ultimately, one of the art directors at now defunct studio Blitz, um, Blitz Games, um, they made like uh, loads of like Connect games. And at the time, they had worked on um a load of like like i guess more family games Mm -hmm. um they had contacted me and he was like yeah maybe we can make something work and they invited me in for an interview um 
an art test and I had to make a 3D model in the building in front of them, Whoa. like a character model. It was a really crazy art test um, where you had to, they gave you a brief and it was just like, okay, start now. And then they just went away and then you just had to just make it. And by the time they came back, you had to have something to show them finished, textured, like everything. It was insane. Yeah. I mean, it was very low quality. It was like PlayStation 2 quality, but um, it was a grueling. I've never had an artist that hard in all my life. What a start to um, your career. But they wanted to prove, they, they really wanted to see that you could do it. They really wanted to see that you could mm. do it. Um, and then they offered me the job about two months before I graduated. Um, and so, yeah, I, I had an arrangement with my um, my course leader at the time that like hey if i start my job early can i still graduate and he was like yeah no worries we'll just say you attended the school <laughs> like <laughs> you attended your class it's fine <laughs> yeah it's fine yeah. um wow yeah but what was really right. interesting is, is i got the lowest grade in my class of all my peers really wow. because i focused on character art and the curriculum stated i had to do everything so, um, generalist mindset and actually you were specializing already which again speaks to what we talked about earlier isn't it about just leveraging your strengths yeah of course exactly right? exactly like it worked hard and i i had a little bit of arrogance back then too i think a little bit of like when you're young and you're it's healthy when you're young than you. <laughs> yeah need a little yeah, bit of cockiness you know I think that's that's cool yeah and it's nobody ever right? asked to see those grades ever again in my entire life. Even when I was getting my work visa to come over to the US, they were just like, have you got a degree? I was just like, yes. And then getting nervous about the fact <laughs> it's a low grade, they were just like, okay, that's fine. You've you got the piece of paper. So, that's all that matters. Yeah. I must admit, in my whole career, I've never had anybody ask to see any paperwork on my qualifications. Yeah, I honestly, it was literally just because of the work visa to immigrate to a different country. Mm. That's the only time it has ever cropped up ever. Just tick like, the legals uh, and then you're good to go. Yeah. Brilliant. Good news. Great, great story. And again, I'm loving this um, this theme of being social. I think this is a really important message for our listeners, actually, about retaining that. Because I don't think that ever changes. Yeah. I think that's a fundamental yeah. skill of not just finding work, but just you know, just about being a good human being, really. So I think it's... Uh... Yeah, and to, to touch on that, you know, it wasn't just that I was reaching out to people saying, hey, you know, here's my mm. stuff. These were people who I had touched base with every couple of months to just be like, um, I might see them at like an EGX or mm. a, a comp and be like, hey, nice to see you again. Uh, you remember I met you here? And they're like, yeah, I remember you. So by the time I was getting interviewed by someone or speaking to someone who was interested in interviewing me, I had spoken to them four, five, six, seven times over three years, uh, never asking for anything, just like staying on their radar. So um, I wasn't just like cold calling someone to be yeah. like, hey, give me a job. This was someone who had some form of like, I, I'd use the analogy of The Sims. In The Sims, you you have to like keep talking to people to keep the social number <laughs> above bar. a certain number, or they're not friends anymore. Like my Brilliant. bar was above zero all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, but that just goes back to nurture relationships, doesn't it? I mean, you've got an anchor. Yeah. So when you do pick, bump into somebody at an expo or an event or you know some kind of you know networking situation, you've got a yeah. in because you've had contact and you they've come to speak at your college or you've you know you've sent yeah. them your work and. And all you need is an in for a conversation. And then you, all you're doing is tending to that relationship, as you mentioned earlier, Del. I think that's really good advice yeah, for anyone exactly. listening. 
Right, Dale. So we're going to segue into what we call affectionately the the geeky section. Uh, we probably power through these, and I promise not to get all fanboy again. I, I won't go on about Metal Gear Solid and Last of Us anymore. I right. might do, but I'll try not to. So um, let's start with your your favorite uh, your favorite show project game you worked on trailer whatever it was. What's the favorite thing that you've been involved in? And why? Uh, it hasn't come out yet, but Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League. Is uh, by far the, my favorite project I've ever worked on. Um, much more than when I I worked a little bit on Arkham, the Arkham projects. Um, for a few, yeah, for a number of reasons. I mean, uh, I wish the game was out by now. It's like when is it cooking out? for ages? I believe it's out early next year. I don't know because I don't work there anymore. But I'm under the impression it's coming out early next year. Okay, um, and what made that so special? A few things. One, I think the character design in it is freaking sick like all the character design in it is just so sick and it's not just about the four main protagonists mm-hmm. there are other um lesser characters in it they're all designed so well um and because there's a lot of humor in the game it invited less of that kind of grim dark feeling or like like yeah. take itself too seriously yeah thing which in, was just awesome but for me as well there was when i was initially um getting into the game industry i had a, i made a list of everything i wanted to like achieve getting into the industry and there were some of them were games related and uh, some of them were things like you know I, i'd really like to be a lead one day i'd you know i'd love to work on an action adventure game etc mm-hmm. blah blah and i and then there were other things like um i'd like to move to a different city but one of them was i'd love to work on uh, a black character with a name because they were it was such a rare thing yeah. when i got into the game industry to have a black character with a name so i was just like i, I just loved it. i didn't even talk about a main character i was just like just a dude who has a name An actual name who's... not like a background yeah, character exactly and that was wow. pretty rare when i got into the game industry um you know just over 10 years ago you didn't have you didn't have very many of those um that's changed over the last three or four years mm-hmm. quite significantly. But this game, Suicide Squad, allowed me to work on not only one of the four main characters, Deadshot, yeah, but he was Deadshot, like yeah. a black character, main character, and he was like all my responsibility. Amazing. And I got to put a lot of myself into him. And they were like, what do you think of this? And I was just like, no, that's the wrong haircut for a black guy. You need to do <laughs> yeah. this haircut. Like, it was it was awesome, dude, like to have so, so much of, of myself like and a lot of my opinion thrown in there as well and um and there was another black guy as well his name was um uh i'm just trying to think of everyone who was on that project there's a um, another black guy danny murdoch who's a um senior rock um animator at rocksteady mm-hmm. and he did a lot of the animations for him too brilliant um, and for him, I think it was a big deal too, because he, you know, got to work on a character that looked like us. And then there was a lot of mannerism, like cultural mannerisms he got yeah, to put in. Really there was just so yeah. much that it was like, we just never thought we would have the opportunity to to work on something like that. Um, and the game being really cool, being really fun. Um, it being, the trailers being received really well, um, part of the Arkham lineage. Yeah. Yeah, that, that project... That project was a dream project for sure, you know. What a great example. Sure. Like, 
Yeah. One well, great yeah, example, definitely. both in terms of obvious representation and being able to, you know, to come this far in your career to finally work on a black character that's got a, a character, you know, and yeah, a exactly. personality and yeah. a name and just the craft personship and the, just the, the artistry involved and being involved in something that will potentially blow up in, in the new year when it comes out. I might treat myself, Del. Hopefully, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. Great, great example. Thank you. Um, the next geeky question is um, the challenge, most challenging job. We used to have, we used to, we're not, we try not to be too negative on this podcast. So uh, used to be worst job. And we thought, no, 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 forget that. Let's go with challenging. Wh- which job pushed you the most? Which one perhaps presented a few challenges that you might not want to come across again? You know, how? If sure. You don't mind. Yeah. Questions. I mean, the most challenging project is often, if you just use that word in isolation, is often the project you most enjoyed. Like, because I had most challenges on, Suicide Squad, but challenge the the challenges that I I've come across in the past have been like it's rarely the project that is the challenge. It's mm-hmm. often the bosses above you that are the challenge. Yeah. Um. I've uh, there's one I feel really safe using as an example because it was like really long ago. Um. It was I worked on a SpongeBob game in my early early time and i remember i had to make spongebob but it had to get signed off by nickelodeon and every time i sent a model over it was getting sent to a different person and they were using a different episode of spongebob to reference his spots (laughs) so they would come back and be like the spots are wrong i was like oh no you're looking at season two spots was like well i like season five spots (laughs) So I'd redo them, like I'd have to re-sculpt them and then send it back and then someone else would pick up and be like, this is not the iconic Spongebob spot. Like, oh my God. That's just like yeah. an example I've, of something I've also experienced. I, I think I experienced a little bit of that in Halo Wars as well, because we had to, um, I was the lead on that project and we had to take we had to take things through an internal art director and an external art director through Microsoft too. Mm-hmm. And it's always incredibly challenging when you're getting something signed off by multiple people who do not communicate to each other and they feel mm-hmm. very differently about a thing. Um, and so various versions of the SpongeBob example wow. have happened. So um, the, uh, yeah. like... even so much as to say is I don't think I would ever work for another games company if I knew the project they were working on was not the IP that they have a lot of ownership of. Yeah. Um, Arkham's are not, Arkham's a bit different because basically um, DC, DC and Warner Brothers just super trust Rocksteady with the Mm. DC brand. They're just like, okay, we're going to say a few things, but we know you guys know what you're doing. Especially after the first Arkham game, which was just a game changer, wasn't it? I mean, you've got to trust it. It wasn't supposed to be that successful, right? So, um, so that's a little different, but if you're working like, you know, cold with a new, um, Mm. yeah, a new, uh, team and a new IP, I wouldn't do it again. I'd be like, I'm not sure this studio is for me. Yeah. Um, And that's fair. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. And thanks for sharing that. That's uh, a lot of people avoid answering yeah, that question. So uh, thanks for, for leaning no, into it. Sure. So who's your uh, your hero, your industry hero? Who would you put up there as somebody that you, you put on a bit of a pedestal, if any, you know? Yeah, I don't think I have one. Yeah, I don't think I... And that's not to say there's no one cool enough. Um, yeah, it's it's difficult. Maybe Raphael Grissetti. 
Okay. Rossetti. Because uh, the, that's the only person, because a lot of people who do very successfully step away from the craft, but all the people I really respect are people who continue to make art. Mm. But there's like a, a threshold of how much art can you do yourself, then you flip over to now your director, whereas yeah. he has managed to probably at the expense of his own mental health, um, managed to be the art director for God of War as well as he's making, you know, making art too. Um, and you can see he's putting so much of himself in the game. So, yeah, yeah. probably Raphael Grissetti for sure. That's Crash. a great example. And just people, yeah, somebody who genuinely cares about their craft, you know, yeah, particularly the artistry piece and, you know, the, the creative yeah. and, you know, selling their soul to And, it, but... you know, figured it out, you know, they didn't remain the starving artist. They figured That's out the how dream, to make isn't it? it? I'm still working on yeah. that. I'm still working on that. Um, cool. Thank you for doing that. So, how about the best, the best shot, scene, piece of you know animation, you know, from from any game you've worked on or not worked on? Nick, what stands out as a as a pinnacle? It does. You guys haven't seen it yet, but pretty much every cutscene from the Suicide Squad is like really super good. I'm so over yeah, this game. Every, I'm so into yeah. It. Every single cinematic from the Suicide Squad Guild of Justice League, you can pick any of them. As long as it's got Deadshot in it, I'm like, this is the best shot of all time. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so, I'm very so, excited yeah. to see this. We very. have to wait for it. I yeah. think, I, I just think they've, they clinched it. Excellent. Well, I'll, uh, I'll be giving you a call when I, when I played it. Yeah. For sure. Um, so then we're moving into the masterclass question. So this is the... Uh, the game that stands out as an absolute games masterclass and what you would consider to be an absolute pinnacle of the art form, what would it be? Yeah, it's, uh, it's really simple for me. It's Last of Us 2. There's things going on. I'm like, I don't know how they did that. Mm. And I don't often say that. Um, I th yeah, it's I think, amazing. yeah, for me, the, I don't even want to pick anything. I'm just like the whole thing is like, this is stupidly impressive. Yeah. Like, so. it's it's next level isn't it i mean the whole you've got two protagonists and they've both got different motives different emotion emotional cores different mm -hmm. backstories you just don't know to root for it's messes with your head doesn't it the whole it, for yeah, sure. forget about the artistry and the the look and the gameplay and the visceral violence of it and just everything just the the storytelling and the how it manipulates you is incredible yeah it's it's insane it's insane. Good. Right. See, I did all right there. I didn't geek out too much on Last of Us 2, did I, Dale? <laughs> I'm going to move on. You did. You're in your pack. Thank you. Um, so about character design, what's your uh, favourite piece of character design? Um, it's actually anything from from the Street Fighter Alpha series. Okay. Or even just the Street Fighter series in general when it was still 2D. And there's a reason why as well. It's not it's not a superficial reason because it's like, oh, it's cool. Hmm. It's because they are so um, successful, no matter what resolution they are, um, at portraying very different ideas, and there's so many of them. Okay. If you look at other um, clones that came later, um, or even games that were in, tried to inherit what was going, going on there, uh, they actually completely failed, like Virtual Fighter. Yeah, um, you can look at it and be, oh yeah, it plays really good. Even to some extent, Tekken, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, I was gonna you say aren't. Uh, you can look at it and it's like, yeah, cool, but it doesn't have the same success 
in characters design a street fight in terms of you just need to kind of squint from far away and you're like i know who that is mm. um and not only do i know who that is it's so iconic that anything that looks a little bit like that is considered a clone yeah like you can just put two chinese buns on any woman and that's like that's oh you're copying chun li yeah yeah like it's it, the level of iconicness is so high and there's still and it's simple enough that you can either go all the way like making it more complex and keeping all the base there or simplifying it, it just works every resolution any console yeah. yeah 3d 2d the whole shebang uh-oh so just when we got into the iconic character design of street fighter Dell's Wi-Fi went down. Dell was off the grid, so we agreed to regroup after last weekend to pick up where we left off. So this is our second act, all refreshed and kicking off with that Street Fighter history lesson and a heck of a lot more. So back to it. Well, we are back. Uh, the power is back on in Los Angeles, Dell, and you're back online. Yeah. You're back with us. Yeah, sorry about that. That's uh, all right. Just cut out. So um, life happens. Yeah, the the the, the gods were angry, but it's like the podcast gods now. <laughs> yeah, so we've never had that happen before. So we uh, we last time we spoke was kind of the tail end of last week. We've now had a weekend. We're all refreshed mm -hmm. and ready to go. And uh, mm -hmm. when we were last speaking, I remember um, we were breaking down uh, the best character design and uh, the genius of Street Fighter. And uh, I think we were talking about it being kind of almost the OG, um, the OG uh, fighting game, you know, came before Tekken, before even Mortal Kombat, arguably. Um, sure. So I know the, the, the Wi-Fi uh, down, downer or the power cut meant you didn't get to complete your answer. So, Dell, yeah, sure. any final words on the majesty of uh, Street Fighter's character design? Yeah, actually, yeah. It um it ties back into modern games actually. So where I was going with it was that, you know, Street Fighter, the readability of the characters has always been like so successful. Mm. You don't really need more than a little bit of a blurry image and you know exactly which character it is. Yeah. And it's funny because we had this entire loop of like, you know, the eighties Street Fighter characterization being like the strongest then as we got into more and more realistic characters it felt like we lost a lot of the readability you know as we got mm. closer into um realism and then we had like this weird resurgence where i guess the 2000s is where games started to like call of duty appeared games started to look really like okay this is this is really like um we're trying to go for more and more realism more and more realistic and then you'd have instances where you had strong characterizations that were legacy from worse worse graphics so i feel like lara croft is a really good example mm. like the reason her outfit looked a lot of the way it was was because the limitations on the first team radar was just yeah. almost you know insane basically mm -hmm. so you had to keep things really simple but um yeah something happened that i noticed whereby uh, Team Fortress was the first game that started to really break down how to make good readable characters that were um, uh, contrasting each other really well. Mm -hmm. But what was really interesting, they did that, I guess, in the, yeah, I guess that was the 2000s-ish, they, they wrote that. But all of that is the same read... Most of the art direction or the art guidelines to make readable characters successful is effectively what they writ about Street Fighter 2 in Japanese, right. like almost 25 Some years late. before. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't think they copied it. I think they came to the same conclusions. Um, and then we saw more and more games kind of like veer away from this. And then in the early 2010s, or yeah, the very early 2010s, there was uh, two artists, Arnold Sang and Alvin Lee. And they would then go on to influence a lot of what we consider modern MMO art characters, which is um, League of Legends and Overwatch. Okay. Um, what a lot of people don't realise is that Overwatch did influence tons of really good, strong character design. Um, they may or may not realise that. Um, but um, there was a focus on the character art design that had that was um, much more about like stylization and really strong, confident imagery. Um, and people now are still trying to like pull that apart. Like you look at um, uh, Valorant, for example, and it looks like it could have been like taken a lot of um, good character design ideas from from Overwatch. Uh, what people definitely often never realize is Alvin Lee, the the principal character concept artist that designed all of the Overwatch characters, worked on the Street Fighter comics for seven years. So he had spent his time in, on the Udon comics learning how to make the Street Fighter characters look as Street Fighter as possible. <laughs> then he went on to make, to design the characters for Overwatch. So I always think of like seminal things being really important in character design. And I don't think there is more seminal work than character art design from Street Fighter. Yeah. Um, we wouldn't have our modern Fortnites and Overwatches and League of Legends and all the punchy characters we think of now. If not possibly for, it for was that game. Yeah, it's like a moment in time, isn't it? When you think about it, yeah. just how it still stands up now, and even some of the different incarnations over the years where they tried to reboot it, just mm-hmm. it's not captured the same essence of those original kind of eighties arcade, for sure. kind of, yeah, visuals. Yeah, they they've tried, but it's, yep. it's been uh, it's difficult. <laughs> now, that's really really interesting, and it's actually quite interesting how a lot of um, uh, gaming is going back to that. 2D style. I mean, I've seen the uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles arcade that is, is on the, the PlayStation Store at the moment. Yeah. And all its kind of um, pixely glory. Uh, and I it think looks and awesome. Streets of Rage 4 got a bit of a re- revamp mm-hmm. a few years ago. And all those, I mean, I actually started, I went looking for Double Dragon the other day. I was like, I'm going to have to start really going back <laughs> oh, to those, <laughs> those wonderful scrolling uh, backgrounds and those really simple uh, character designs. Of course. Amazing. Well, thank you for bringing in uh, us full circle um, through the uh, mm-hmm. through the geeky section, which uh, brings us neatly into kind of Act Two of the podcast, Dell, which is where oh. we start getting into advice, whether it's advice for industry, advice for you know young folk coming up, even advice for your younger self, which we'll get to. But the first question I'm going to ask you in Act Two here is that the best piece of advice that you've ever received personally. Oh. <clears throat> Um, yeah, getting to the big ones now, Del. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, one of the best advice... I, can, I don't know if I can say the best, but one of the best pieces of advice is um, to be in, be undeniable in your proof um, of what you can do. Um, because uh, uh, you kind of have to go on the assumption that people who haven't worked with you before are natural skeptics. Mm-hmm. So if they see your body of work or they see anything you can do, they, they have to 
protect themselves by assuming you can't do what they can't see. So if you're really good at one thing, but you're kind of good at another thing, but you decide to not show the thing that you're kind of good at, they're going to assume you don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was one of the strongest pieces of advice I got was like, if you're going to make a portfolio or you're going to try and showcase any of your work, like pretend that the person is coming in, the per- pretend the person viewing it is coming in, not believing that you can do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, then you're almost just like, okay, cool. I need to do this, but I also need to make sure that they can see I can also do X, Y, Z in a very clear way. Clear way. Because uh, you're pitching, you're pitching yourself. You can't go on someone's uh, trust of of mm. what you can do. That becomes a lot easier once you've worked on more games. Yeah, um, experience, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think it was one of the best pieces of advice I got early because it allowed me to, um, yeah, maybe work on classes of games I hadn't worked on before. Because I would take the time to be like, okay, I've never worked on like a AAA tile. I've never done realistic characters, you know, at some point in my career. So let me make a portfolio that shows I can do that. Um, so, so I won't have to ask someone, hey, give me a shot. I can just be like, hey, I actually already do this. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was that. probably the strongest piece of advice. Who gave you that advice? Do you remember? <clears throat> it was, yeah, it was actually... Uh, a guy I would go on to work with, a character artist, his name was Simon Eibel. Um, nice. I don't know what he's doing now. He was incredibly influential on my career trajectory because I think he was one of the only black character artists in the UK, uh, at least senior black character artists in the UK, and he had done tons of work on Time Splitters. Oh, God, yeah. Um, Lost in the past. Yeah. If you play Times you played with, you played many of his characters. Yeah. Um, but he's a really, really um, he really influenced me a lot in general. He get in fact, I could do a whole like the advice he gave me <laughs> section just on what this guy told me. Like, we well, might was... get to throw in a few more with some of the questions we've got from. Uh, from yeah, of course, sure. of course, of course, of course. Yeah, of course. Be undeniable in your proof in what you can do. I think that's a great piece of mm-hmm. advice. Uh, we used to joke in the early uh, podcast episodes <clears throat> that some of these uh, quotes would work well on Access VFX T-shirts, <laughs> and I think this one's a, a keeper as well. <laughs> so yeah, nice yeah. one, Simon, if you're listening. <laughs> Absolutely. So, what about imposter syndrome, Dell? Have you ever <clears throat> felt out of your depth, or that you're like faking it till you make it? Have you ever suffered from the the demon that is imposter syndrome? Yes, but I didn't feel it in the beginning. Okay. So in the beginning, I was, I had a lot of arrogance Mm -hmm. and I'll explain what it was like arrogance of youth, not arrogance of my ability. It was arrogance of like, I can achieve anything if I put my head to it. But to the point that it's like, it got in, it became almost like dominating my personality. Like, yes, I can attack this. I can do it. The only time I ever felt that um, I got to the to the stage where I was just like, hmm, this is maybe I'm not yeah maybe I'm not necessarily like the right person for this. I'm not sure. Was um, as soon as I wasn't able to perform to my strengths, and it was actually when I became a lead. I became a lead on the project Halo Wars Two. Um, when I was at Creative Assembly and initially there was a lot of uh, um, 
there was a lot of uh, secrecy about what the project was. Mm-hmm. So when I signed onto the project, I was explained that it was a, um, it was a, a real time strategy game um, based on Halo, and they were considering a few things about how they were going to do it. And there was even discussion about it being a little bit like XCOM, which was great for me because that's a very character-focused yeah. RTS. It didn't end up being in that direction. Um, but one of, the, um, one of the things that happened was I started and I had done years of working on characters and I was told that I was lead, but my title was not lead characterized. It was lead character and vehicleized. And I was just like, vehicles? <laughs> was just, I didn't know what to think. But I would be in charge of um, making sure that the legacy of Halo vehicles um, evolved to the next stage while respecting the previous iterations of designs before it. And it was up wow. to me to make sure that happened. <laughs> wow. And I was like, yeah, by that time I had already started. So I definitely felt like I had. Um, imposter syndrome there but um, one thing I will say is um, learning on the job is most of the job Mm. so there isn't necessarily a need to have imposter syndrome if you personally believe in your ability to give a give have a go yeah to get stuck in Um, yeah in fact I will say what happened was but it was a little bit of my advantage that I didn't come in with a mindset of what I wanted to do with Halo and I wasn't like that focused because I just looked back at everything that had been done and I just listened to all the fan videos of what they liked and I pushed for that project to pay attention to the vehicle design of Halo Wars 2 no, of Halo 2 and ignored Halo 4 at the time because all the fans were like, we hate these designs, we like the old designs. Oh, and I was okay. just like, I think I agree with them. And it ended up being successful enough that Microsoft 343 ended up kind of picking up how well it was received. And then in the, the most recent Halo, they've started to go back to the Halo 2 designs. Wow. Um, so almost based so on that the, wasn't necess- the research you did on the fan feedback. And it wasn't my research per se. It was like the information was just out there. Yeah. Like clearly the fans are responding better to the classical look. So a lot of the push was like, um, we were really fortunate um, that we had the opportunity if we wanted to, to use mm-hmm. some of the newer designs, but it fit in well with the story for Halo Wars 2 to have the older designs too, because it was a, a platoon or squadron that had kind of been lost in space and they had a lot, a lot of the old stuff. And they had some of the information of new stuff, but I was just like, look, it leans into the story if we just take it backwards instead of forwards. Um, and then any time we had to design a new unit, I was like really pushing for, don't look at any of the newer designs. Look at how they would have done it if it was like, we had a lot of restrictions and it was Halo 2. Um, I even got to design a, a, a lot of the enemy vehicles as well. Um, and I had a lot of fun with it, so... Yeah, I, I would say, yeah, that was my time of having imposter syndrome, for sure. But yeah. it ended up being a pro, um, because it's an opportunity. So, having imposter yeah. syndrome is an opportunity. No, I completely agree with you. I think um, we talk about this a lot on the pod about it. It's, it's quite a good thing to have sometimes, just to kind of keep you mm. humble as well. You talked about kind of the arrogance of youth earlier, um, and actually just keeps you level-headed and you don't succumb to ego yeah. and become one of those fevered... Keeps you in check. Yeah, keeps you in check, absolutely. 
So good stuff. Yeah, thanks for that, Dale. Um, and yeah, you're not the only, you're in good company on the podcast because everybody goes through a bit of imposter syndrome and shares the same views around it for sure. So the next question is the time travel question uh, where you get in your DeLorean and you go back to visit your teenage self. So talking about the arrogance of youth, you get to meet that, that Dell uh, from back from your teenage years. Uh, and what advice would you give your teenage self if you could go back? Um, my advice would be really concise. Um, it would, it would be to be more open to advice. Okay. That as simple as that. The reason being is because very early on I hyper focused on things and I ended up spending the latter end of my career opening up to things. Um when I think the hyper focus could have come later. Um, and every piece of advice, almost every piece of advice I got was some variation of, hey, you could try this or have you explored this or maybe you shouldn't only look at X, Y, Z. Um, so my advice wouldn't, my advice would literally be just take more advice. Yeah. Like, because um, when you are younger, you should be failing. Mm. You should be trying Very stuff nice. and failing and seeing. Yeah. You should, you sh- whereas... I was really focused on, no, I'm good at this. I'm going to just stick yeah. to what I, I'm good at. Um, but yeah, ad- advice is really good for sending you in the right direction. But advice is also really good for sending you in the wrong direction early. Yeah, so you know not to go down that road again. So you know not to go. That. You learn way more from trying something from ad- from bad advice than yeah. you would do only taking good advice. That's really interesting, particularly around it trying stuff. So trying different softwares or programs rather than it always. When we talk about advice, you often think, well, you must uh, have a good handshake and, you know, you know, speak, yes. you know, speak with authority or whatever the advice is. And actually mm-hmm. what you say is quite pertinent in that it's usually, well, maybe try this piece of software or that program or that thing and give that a go and, and, and see you know, whether that kind of sinks or swims. So. I think that's that's great advice to give your teenage self and, and any any teenagers out there uh, in, in the same boat. So, similar question is, what do you wish you had known when you were starting out? So not quite the advice you'd give yourself, but it's, what do you wish you had in your grey matter up there, Del, when you were starting out? It's a big questions, aren't they? Yeah, too much early, early doors on a... Monday morning. No, no, uh, I'm planning my answer in a way. So that, I guess the one thing I, I wish I knew when I started would be that the gaming industry, my industry in particular, um, goes through these almost cataclysmic changes every three or four years um, where everyone now has to learn a new um, piece of software. Everyone has to learn, like how to do things differently. Now the graphics have gone from, you know, X to Y to Z. Um, and I think similar to my old, um, my, my last answer would be that I wish that every time something like that happened, because it happens all the time, that's a fantastic opportunity to just dive in whatever's new. Yeah. Uh, I think I was very apprehensive to be like oh they're changing over that new thing i'll see how it goes you know maybe okay. we'll be you know 
this isn't just software. This is like um, techniques. This is, you know, how networking events work. Um, I was quite... I think I wish I had known that anytime those things happen, the people who win are the people who embrace the change. Lean into it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It took me a little while to realise that. I imagine a lot of people are quite sceptical around any changes, particularly in industry and software, and there'll be a lot of people who are... You know, this particular software is not going anywhere, so I'm just going to double down on that. But there are so many yeah. trends. I mean, you know, I've only been in industry for you know, 10 years-ish, and it's changing all the time. And obviously, Unreal Engine is the flavor of the month at the moment. And you yeah. either lean into it fully or, you know, you know, you get left behind. Yes. And there's like a graded scale of scary. So <laughs> I remember when... I remember when there was a time when I first started getting into um, industry-related stuff. There was um, a lot of focus on concept artists having incredible skills, traditional skills. And then I remember the, the point at which you started to see professional concept artists who just started photo bashing. They would literally just get loads of photos and then manipulate them, paint over them a bit and give you a new piece of concept. And there was a massive backlash between the people who were just like, no, you should be using it like this, like that. That's not real concept art versus the people who are just like, I can get similar results in a short amount of time. Yeah. Um, and the truth is the people who can draw didn't go away. Their skills are still useful. And the people who can um, manipulate photos they're still useful in some ways. It's the people who who can use both who mm-hmm. like just completely um shot out of the water in terms of their hireability. They were way more hireable in the end. And we've constantly seen that. Like I saw when um three artists had to now learn how to sculpt in ZBrush and a lot of them were just like, forget that, that looks ridiculous. I'm only gonna stick to what I know. Um, and then they either got phased out of the industry or they had to move into mobile games and they were kind of locked into into that yeah. even if they wanted or to or not and um yeah it's every now and then you see it it's a it's a new thing i guess the new thing now is whether or not um traditional concept artists are going to use ai to I've seen so um, much ai stuff on my feed push, yeah yeah so. sure to perpetuate some of their work but interestingly enough AI gets pretty bland very fast when you see it a lot. Mm. But when you see an artist who's really good, use it to be like, here's a body of work I've made and then I've used AI to help me make faster work and I'm manipulating it. Yeah. And then like now I've made like, a, yeah, like that thing, that dance, if you get someone who's really good at art and they have a really clear idea in their head, they can be like, I'm just going to showcase an entire world Yeah. and I could paint all of this easily. But I can get, I can do this seven to eight times faster with some help. Um, I think something special is going to happen there where you're going to hire a guy who's just like, I need you to help me world build. And he's just like, no problem. I can help build your world. It's not just a case of making a nice image. Mm. We're going to try out ideas. I'm going to, so I'm just um, speculating here, obviously. But so far, every time I've ever seen, where something new comes and it's a bit like shakes everything up it's the people who are already good that double down on a new thing where just magic happens so cool i love that it's very easy to poo poo the whole ai art side i've seen so many things i saw this 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 thing i'm seeing at the moment it's like 
um, films and films and games in a bot in a jar, and AI have kind of okay. created. They've taken all the imagery from The Matrix, or they did a game series recently oh, yeah, as well. Yeah, they had yeah. The Last of Us, all kinds, and then they've just it just it's just in a jar. Just it's just a graphic of the film, and you get a sense of the film by looking at the colors and the color palette, and there's a bit Amazing. of imagery in there, and it's all pure AI, and it's very easy for artists to kind of run away from that or poo-poo it and say well that's not no humans involved in that it's all computers or you know the, the machines yeah, are going to yeah. rise and take over the world and actually that it takes the right person to actually see it as i said earlier like a collaboration it's a partnership it's actually seeing how you can make it work for you and you, you're still sure you know you're not you're not kind of you know doing yourself out of a job you're actually leveraging another um, another piece of software in many ways or Still amazing. It's terrifying and amazing in equal measure, though, all the AI stuff that's going on at the moment. Absolutely. I am personally glad I'm in the 3D yeah. sector so that the AI um, the AI wave, I'm not at the beach. Mm. I'm a little bit inland. I've got some time to like figure yeah. out what's happening mm. before it reaches me. But hey, it's going to happen. Interesting. So uh, we're moving into the last uh, three questions now, Del. Um, sure. The, uh, they're industry-related, and we finish on the big, the big golden nugget. Uh, but what would you change about the games industry if you could magic one time? What, what would you change? Oh, that is tough. Um, I think the thing I'd really love to change about the games industry is to for larger studios to make smaller games on less budget. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, we're now in a very, very awkward time now where you have massive blockbusters that take four, five, six years to make. Mm -hmm. Um, And they need to be successful. They need to be successful. It's not an option. You do not... Of course, you do not pour hundreds of millions of dollars into something over four to five to six years for it to maybe work. Yeah. Um, And that creates a lot of issues. It means that everything has to be a sequel or a remake. Mm. It's like the movie industry, isn't it? Right. Um, uh, And it also means that you have to try and motivate people for longer than they'll be in high school Mm. you know like i remember when i was working on uh i was working on suicide squad for four years um and one of my friends my close friends was like oh man why didn't you say to the end and i was like i would have loved to i was just ready to do something a little different it was coming to the end and i told him i was just i was a little bit uncomfortable spending five years of my life on something feeling like i wanted to try something different too like that's a long time um yeah it's a very 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 long time looking at the same thing over and over again and also it means the stakes are so high that the the opportunity to try things becomes can we make sure this new thing we're adding add to the marketability and profitability of the project rather than like can we just try something that's fun yeah um i mean you can have the fun too but it needs to be married with marketability and profitability yeah i mean it goes back to what you said about um uh, being being a younger person and being allowed to fail and then allowing room to fail and yeah like i say you've always got the bigger pitch stuff and at hand but you know having almost the equivalent of a, a small indie film as a game 
uh, yeah, again, would be a hugely positive thing. Yeah, but again, yeah, the big the big titles will of course win out, but there's a lot in there around taking a punt on something that's quirky yeah. and fun and different, and you know, that, then that could be the next big thing rather than kind of the constant yeah, big heavy hitting titles, you know. And people are often quick to say, "Oh, just go indie." It's like uh, indie is not the solution to this. Mm. In a, in the same way, because you're going up against behemoths. Like, you just, like, there needs to be a sliding scale of, like, smallest indie to mid-tier projects to, like, it can't just be indie or blockbuster. There mm. needs to be something ground, yeah. in, in the middle, yeah. Um, it's I don't think it's healthy or sustainable for the game industry, and it means that we're going to end up with non-stop sequels, and the only people making new projects um, will be throwing... It'll just be so risky because yeah. people are only expecting God of War yeah. 5 or whatever it is, you know? Like, yeah. the expectations will just get... Yeah, anyway. No, that's interesting. interesting insight, actually, into, into the gaming side, for sure. Thank you, Del. Um, no problem. So, staying in industry, we've got the big industry advice question, uh, which is one thing we can do as a step towards a more inclusive and diverse industry. What could we do better on, better on, better of in the, uh, the inclusion space? Yeah, this one's uh, this one's a lot easier to answer. Um, there's this uh, kind of belief I've noticed where people say people say, um, well, you shouldn't push for more diversity. All you should do is just hire whoever's best for the the, the task at hand. Um, and I understand that thought process, but there's another thought process I'd like to bring up. It's the process of, okay, cool, we need, you know, work on this new game and we need this new, you know, thing done. We need someone who's really good at that job. Let's just hire whoever's best for that. The problem you have with that answer is um, if you are, for example, working in a, um, a, a game industry, a game studio that needs, a particular thing done at a high level, you require someone of a certain level of seniority. Um, that means that if you want what you consider the best person for the job, it's someone who's done it before. Mm-hmm. And it's likely someone who has a senior level who has probably been in the games industry at least six years, let's say. Which means now you're now hiring whoever is... Whoever was entering the industry half a decade plus ago, probably more. Most seniors have been around a little bit longer than that. Yeah. Um, so you're not hiring from a pool of people from 2022. You're hiring from people of a pool of people from 2014. Mm-hmm. So your diversity um, issue now becomes we're hiring from the past when the industry wasn't as diverse. Yeah. And you're kind of perpetuating a growth without diversity. That's not something you have to necessarily be like, okay, cool, so we just should pick the brown person instead. That's not mm. the solution to that. The um, the easiest thing you can do is just say, okay, cool, we need to hire some senior people. We should also find and allocate tasks, responsibilities, and development 
sections of our studio that can be handled by people with less seniority and we still profit and benefit from it. Now you've completely changed the stakes. You said, okay, cool, we are going to hire X amount of seniors, but we're also going to hire some juniors because we get the benefit of hiring new, very um, uh, energetic people who are really willing to learn. um, And they're going to be very happy to take on lots of new tasks and you'll be able to get them at a lower rate. They'll be happy to enter the games industry and also, you'll be able to develop talent your, on your own. Yeah. You won't have to, to have to falsify your diversity um, hiring thing. It will fix itself on its own. If you say we're looking for junior roles for exposition, we're just looking for whoever's the best. I guarantee you, you're going to find, as long as they're, jun- they're opening a junior position, you're going to find all sorts of diverse people of automatically who are amazing. You won't need to like, like fix it or finesse it. Like Mm. there's going to be all sorts of diverse people who are just going to just show you portfolios or bodies of work that are just going to be great from like a junior level. Um, I think, yeah, sometimes people assume that, oh, you have to hire the best people from the, the, for the job negates the fact that your hiring practices creates a bias that, you don't actually benefit from mm. because now if you're just like oh we only want senior people that means you're paying each person double what you would have had to then get from a junior mm. now you also have to get your senior guys doing junior tasks too which they don't want to do yeah, yeah. and it's not going to be long before they get a million opportunities in their linkedin of other places they could go to and you're probably going to end up trying to replace them anyway so yeah the easiest thing i could say is junior roles it fixes lots of things that's how i got in the industry Mm. someone gave me an opportunity to put my name next to other juniors and i beat i just bested them yeah it wasn't no one knew what i looked like when i like when i first tried to apply like it just so happened that the person i had been speaking to said oh i saw that you applied oh like i saw your work blah Mm. blah blah um and I was really fortunate enough when I got hired, they showed me what the competition was as well. And it's like, hey, here's the competition on the stuff. Not. And it made me feel a bit better about like, yeah. oh, right, I feel better knowing I authentically earned this role. Yeah, um, that's a great that's a great answer, Del. And, and that speaks to a lot of what we've been doing with the apprenticeships over here is you're bringing in reams and reams of junior talent that have, uh, some, some folk have barely touched software. I mean, there's a, uh, someone I hired at the mill when I was over there and, you know, he knew a bit of Nuke, um, a little bit of Blender, and now he's absolutely smashing it. And that's one example across numerous studios. Uh, and it is, speaks to exactly what you said. It's that junior role where you come in, you get energy, loyalty, you know, you invest in them. And, and uh, you know, we've seen all, I mean, all these all these folks go off to do incredible work in the last six, seven years, give or take. Absolutely. That's a good chunk of time. So that's great advice if anyone's listening. So that brings yeah, us neatly. That's another thing. Oh, go on, sorry, Del. So yeah, that was another thing as well. When people use the word diversity of hiring as well, they often negate that age is a diversity too. Hmm. When I see say the word diversity, I'm partially talking about yes, people who are from uh, minority backgrounds or perhaps from the LGBTQ community, but I'm also thinking of people who are just like I'm 19 and every game developer I've ever met is in their 30s. Yeah. Like, how do I? And I'm like. 
diversity yeah. of age is also oh, huge. a thing. Been on the other side with um, career changes, people who you know yeah. they're, they're strapped in. I mean, yeah, I remember I went to the, sure. the VFX festival years ago, and there was a question for somebody in the audience who was well into their forties. They're working in an accounts job because they were supporting their family. Kids are growing up now. I get to. Um, follow my dreams to be a visual effects artist or whatever it was they wanted to do at the time. Absolutely. So I think I've seen great. a lot of that, actually. Yeah. Especially these days, you know, with, you know, uh, agile workforces and hybrid working. Yes. It's opening up the, uh, the opportunities for sure. Right. So it's the final question, Dale. Final one. We're going in. Cool. Big one. It's it. the career advice question. Your golden nugget of advice for anyone trying to get into the industry. What's it going to be? You can have two if you uh, want, but officially, the official rules of the Axis VFX Vault is one. My biggest advice is to only ask questions of um, whatever role you want to get into, accompanied with a body of work you've done. If you can. If you don't have a body of work to say, like, hey, I was hoping for advice on hit blah 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 on what I've done you're not it's not really going to be that useful whatever they say is not going to be that useful and you're not really going to make a mark Mm -hmm. if you haven't done any work yet you shouldn't be asking any questions it's not time to ask questions (laughs) like yeah so that, that's probably my yeah my strongest my strongest piece of advice um and if you don't feel comfortable showing your work too that says a lot more about what you should be focusing on yeah it's okay to not be comfortable. Just make some more work. Yeah, take the advice. Make some more stuff. Sharpen your tool set. Keep going. Yeah. Del, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I know this, we, we, we've welcome. done an unplanned two-parter, um, yeah, yeah, but it's been sure. a pleasure reconnecting with you. Um, uh, what an insight <laughs> into the games industry. We should do more of these. Um, this is uh, yeah, I've learned a lot, not just about the game side. <laughs> From but all, me? But just the, the advice, the, you know, real talk and some really, really good advice yeah. in there. From you know, when we spoke last week, some some great stuff in there. And and this this, uh, you know, we've had the weekend to reflect. I was at a careers event today, and even I was even shared. We're not even we haven't even launched the podcast yet, and I was talking about what you were talking about around working on uh, a black character with the name still, and uh, that, that's re- that really resonated with me. That was you know incre- incredible. Yeah, uh, yeah. That that. Yeah, that's such a Man. late point in your career. I could talk about that subject forever. <laughs> it was a big deal for me. <laughs> well, we're looking forward to seeing it. And uh, Del, uh, as always, uh, we ask all our guests, is there anything you want to plug or shout out? Or, you know, I mean, I know you're moving into literally about to start your role at Naughty Dog. But is there anything you want to yeah. put out there? Any work anything coming soon obviously we've got suicide squad kill justice league coming out next year yeah ex- it, it should be coming early next year yeah i think that i think that's probably the big one i mean i've done a little bit of work on jedi survivor as well but um not as much as i'd say for suicide Squad. i poured my heart into that game man so yeah mm-hmm. look out for that game um feel free to follow me on twitter as well um at the cartel del or one word um, if you want to like ask questions, I'm happy to answer anything. Thank um, you, Dal. And well, Dal, thank you very much. Um, take good care. Uh, I never know how to end of an episode. Course. I say famously at the end of every episode, <laughs> so I'm just going to end it. I'm going to say thank you, Dal Walker. It's been a pleasure. Of course. Thanks, Simon. Well, that was episode 23 of the Access VFX podcast. What an effing excellent conversation. 
Be undeniable in your proof in what you can do. Love that. Some great advice in there for both industry and next-gen talent. And that insight into Caribbean communities in South London and the history connected to where the bus lines end, wow. And come on, that discussion on Street Fighter, a games history lesson right there. Before you go, a couple of things. Please go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating, subscribe and leave us a review if you fancy it. And most importantly, please get involved with our Foundry-sponsored global e-mentoring programme. If you're in the UK, Europe, USA, Canada, Australia or New Zealand, you can sign up for free to get an industry mentor or be a mentor yourself to folks aspiring or just getting started in VFX animation or games. Please go to www.accessvfx.org forward slash mentors and change someone's life. Thank you, Dell, for being an incredible guest. Thanks to Tom Box for producing it and for the graphics. And of course, thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you on episode 24, where we'll have another brilliant guest lined up to brave the AVFX vault. See you then. There we go. End of another Access VFX podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. To find out more about what we discussed, our mentoring program and events we're at, then head over to our website at www.accessvfx.org and follow us on social media. Big thank you for listening and until next time, bye.